Whereas the American system, I call it the most sophisticated propaganda instrument in the history of mankind because we have this wide array of news sources, right? It's like you walk down the aisle and there's like a hundred brands of toothpaste. And so you think you've got this grand, but actually it's the same product, just in different bottles, right? So it's the same kind of thing. It's not that they're the same. It's Noam Chomsky has this really good quote that I use in the book, which is the most successful way to control the way people think is to allow two viewpoints that are relatively close to each other to vociferously disagree. So that's what we have, right? We have this sense of this like echo chamber where like the Republican and the Democrat can like really, really argue about this one thing, but kind of within these narrow confines. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. Every week, I invite you to care more so we can create a better world together. Today, we're going to explore concepts around free speech, idea policing, censorship, and divisiveness. This is a subject that we've covered from time to time, beginning even with our very second episode of this podcast, as we connected with Genevieve Smith. In that conversation, she revealed herself to be a, quote, professional bummer, and we talked about healing divides and why we're stuck in the divisive world of today. Now we're going to deepen that discussion as we connect with Tony Brasunas. Tony was censored by Huffington Post in 2016 for covering the Democratic primary from the supposed wrong perspective. You'll see a lot of air quotes if you're watching me on video right now. His writings have nevertheless been published online in newspapers and magazines and in both corporate and independent media. He has just completed his second book called Red, White, and Blind. This book offers unique insights into how we can take our blinders off and open our minds again. Tony lives in Sebastopol, California, with his wife, his son, and two dozen apple trees, which sounds divine to me. Tony, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Karina. Delighted to be here. Wow. So as we kick off today's conversation, I think it is going to be the elephant in the room we have to talk about just out the gates, right? You were censored by Huffington Post. Talk to us about that. Why? Sure. Yeah. And that really was the birth of Red, White, and Blind, the book as well. So it's a great place to start the story and the conversation here. I was doing some independent journalism, and I was also covering politics with the San Francisco Chronicle a bit. In the early 2000s, I took a little bit of time away. I got back involved in 2015, and I was writing really just on my own. Somebody at Huffington Post contacted me based on my writings, and they wanted to publish it. It was fine, an article. They published it. They brought me on board. I started writing about the Democratic primary in 2015 and into 2016. And I was writing more from the Bernie Sanders perspective, which was not as widely covered in the corporate media at the time. So a lot of my pieces got a lot of attention. I would get 10,000, 20,000, sometimes 50,000 or 100,000 views on my articles. Occasionally, they would reach the front page of Huffington Post. And things were fine. I was covering it both out of interest and also support. And I was both covering news perspectives as well as writing opinion pieces. And things were going fine. And then what happened is right on the eve of the convention, this is July of 2016, a little flashback. And so we're going into the convention. Neither candidate had enough earned delegates to win the nomination outright. So it was going to come down to the superdelegates, these 
people at the DNC who get vote with the power of 10,000 voters, basically. It's a very interesting system we could get into. So I wrote this piece saying, look, we don't have a clear winner here. We now know Donald Trump has won the nomination on the Republican side. Bernie Sanders is polling better against Trump in head-to-head polling, particularly on the question of trust. He's way ahead of Hillary Clinton by like some 50 points in the polls. And so I wrote this article saying the headline was, the reason many independents and progressives will not be able to support Hillary Clinton. I think that was the title of it. But basically the argument was, look, superdelegates, at this point, it's going to be better to go with Bernie Sanders. He's the better, going to be the better candidate in the general election. And I thought it was a fairly straightforward piece. I put it up in the evening, a couple of days before the convention. I woke up the next morning and it was gone and it was just taken down. And it was a really interesting experience. I had sort of touched on censorship and media disinformation and media distortion before and some of my other writings, but to experience it firsthand was really something quite different. The irony of it. (laughs) The irony. And so one of the things that I love to get into in this conversation and sort of the silver lining that I experienced in that was what I call the new enlightenment, this sort of this new awakening that we're experiencing because of the birth of independent media. And so what happened the next morning is I look around and I I think it was on Reddit. I saw some conversation. Where did Tony Bersunis' article go? And people sort of tracked it down and put it on their own site. And so I was able to find it there because I had gone into Huffington Post. I wasn't even able to log in anymore. Like I was gone. I wasn't just censored. It was, I was sacked. I was done. I was gone from Huffington Post at that point, which was crazy. (laughs) Yeah. No, you're fired. It's just, oh, you just don't have access. Goodbye. You're ghosted. Yeah. I did finally have a lawyer friend write them a lawyerly letter to try to get at the root of it. It didn't really come to anything. I didn't really get a clear explanation. But what I saw that morning was that these independent sites had put the piece back up. And so I copied it and I pasted it into my Medium blog, put a link to it on Twitter, got on the plane, went to Philadelphia, was there for the convention, covered it from my own perspective, provided some news that wasn't in the corporate media about the convention. A lot of people came up to me like, oh, you're Tony Bersunas. I read your piece. I don't know why it was censored, but it was really interesting. And so the piece became my most widely read that year for the entire year. And so it's something very interesting that's going on where without the intermediation of that corporate media, the Huffington Post, my piece was still able to reach many, many thousands of people. And so I think that's a really interesting effect. I'm interrupting you here for a second, because what is so interesting about this is that for one, you were just producing what could amount to an opinion piece, right? It was your perspective. You weren't saying it was a perspective of HuffPo, right? You were making a deductive argument and reasoning that the situation could be difficult for Hillary to win the election. You ended up being right. I mean, it's prescient ultimately in the end, but it speaks to something that I think we already have some generalized knowledge around, which is that the conversations that are being had in particular media outlets are very one-sided. And so we aren't getting the same sort of Dan Rather nightly news perspective that we used to see from media, at least with some kind of frequency where you felt like the newspaper articles you would read would explore who, what, where, when, and why, and try to give you at least a balanced perspective. But it's getting harder and harder to find a truly balanced perspective in today's media. And so you end up having to go and subscribe to many different sorts of publications to try and get a more general view of what's actually happening, which makes it feel almost like we are in a state that 
has controlled the information we see in a way that we might be critical of other countries like China. I mean, I don't think I'm speaking anything super controversial here. It's literally what we're learning from the media that we consume is overly one-sided now. Yeah. And it's fascinating that you bring up China. My first book was about my trips in China. I was over there um, teaching English. And so I one chapter of Red, White, and Blind, I actually compare the American media system to the Chinese media system. And we could get into that as it's a really interesting comparison. But what you're getting at, I think, is exactly right. I think we're in a time now where the media is increasingly divided. And so in Red, White, and Blind, which the goal of the book is not to be the Democrats' book or the Republicans' book, it's meant to look at this from a more holistic standpoint. And the state that you just mentioned is literally what Red, White, and Blind is meant to convey. We're all in this state of deception. We're all in this state of being deceived. And generally, we don't even know it. Or even when we know it, it's still not as easy to get out of it as we think. And that's creating this division in the country where if you just get in sort of your red news and you just read that, you have one vision of what the problem is, what's good, what's bad, what to fear, what to hope for. If you're just reading the blue news, it's the same. You get the same, here's your enemies you're supposed to hate. Here's the news that you're supposed to believe. Here's what you're supposed to hope for and and all of that. And now social media only feeds us the news that we want to see or the perspectives that we already have. So we're becoming stupider. I mean, yeah, stupider, or at the very least, possibly stupider. That's an interesting way to put it, but certainly more divided, right? Certainly less aware. And I think that's what you're getting at, less aware of what the actual truth is, what is actually true in the world. And so because of that, my real hope with Red, White, and Blind, I spend about half the book through examples and sort of telling stories and showing how bad the problem is, how much deception there is, and how many of the stories we think we know about are actually we have a completely often distorted view of them. And then I spend sort of the second half of the book talking about what to do about it. And a little bit of a pep talk and a little bit of self-help book, I try to do it a little bit like I talk about a balanced media diet and about ways that we can break out of this and actually that, that it's already happening and that the good news is that the new enlightenment is already here unfolding and we're moving into a world where we can know for the first time in the history of humanity, we can know What is going on in the world? That's actually never been true before. Like I trace back, I go back to the dark ages and sort of feudalism and the Catholic church and how they controlled this distribution of information. Then we moved into the first enlightenment and then throughout sort of the free press as it existed in the 1700s, 1800s, then what I call the century of propaganda, basically 1920 to 2020. And we're just sort of coming out of the century of propaganda right now. So it's a very exciting, but also very confusing time to figure things out, for sure. So where do people go to build that balanced media diet? Are there particular publications that you're seeing now that you feel offer a broader perspective? So what I do is I actually go back in history and look at the original vision of the free press. And when the free press was put in the Constitution, it wasn't that there would be this sense of one or two sources that would be objective and would be truthful. That was never the case. And that's not the case now. The century of propaganda began in the 1920s with this idea of professional objective journalism. It's actually a myth. It was created to justify the consolidation of media ownership. Because at the time in the 1920s or in the 19-teens, we're coming out of the muckraker era. And Ida Tarbell and Upton Sinclair and some of these people were writing these really, the early investigative journalism, the early exposés that were really sort of taking apart early corporate power, Standard Oil, all of that. And they realized that the way they needed to fight this or the way they chose to fight this was to try to buy up all the newspapers. It was the first time newspapers were lucrative. So pardon me, I'm going to go a little bit into history here. 
And so what ended up happening is they came up with this idea of journalism schools. The journalists will be professionals. And so they founded all of the journalism schools started in like the 19 teens, like Columbia and Missouri and all these sort of the more prestigious journalism schools. And what that did is it justified saying, look, we're going to have one newspaper in the city, but it's okay because it's going to be objective. These are going to be professional journalists. Whereas before that, there was always, every city would have dozens of newspapers. There'd be like the Italians newspaper, the Democrats newspaper, the newspaper of people that were suffragettes or the abolitionists. So we're actually moving back into that time. And it's a little bit disorienting, but we're moving back into a time where every perspective has its own voice. So what I do with the balanced media diet, rather than try to say, here's this one source that is always truthful and objective. And if you just go watch this source, you're going to get the story. It doesn't exist. And I'm here to say it was hard to realize that Santa Claus didn't exist. And there was no like elf bringing us gifts every year. And the same thing, we have to realize that there is no one objective source of news. And so the balanced media diet, I reviewed hundreds of news sources and I basically called it down to 40. And what I propose is a different set of sources each day of the week. And if you've got 30 minutes, then I say these two sources each day. And so over the course of seven days, you get 14 different sources. If you've got an hour, then I add two more each day. And if you've got two hours, I add two more. So most people probably don't have two hours, but if you want to become a journalist, then do that. The idea is that in order for us to overcome two issues, one is the fact that we're in this deceived state, and the other is the political divisions that we have, this sort of bifurcation of society. In order to move past that, we have to be able to understand other perspectives. So there's these controversial issues, right? There's abortion or there's gun rights or there's the vaccines and all these things. It doesn't mean you have to change your mind about those ideas. But by understanding what the other side says, rather than them being the enemy, the people that think differently about controversial issues are the enemy, they're lesser humans, or they're coming for us. I mean, that's literally what they're saying on both sides, is to understand that viewpoint and say, okay, I don't agree with it, but now I can understand it. So that's the first part. And the other part is that through doing that, we actually hone our own minds to be able to understand things more deeply and overcome what you just said, we're becoming stupider. We become smarter. Our brains, just like a balanced food diet, is bracing for the body. And at first, you don't want to eat that stuff or you want to eat more of this other stuff. But your body starts to engage with it and you become more healthy. It's bracing to the body. It's invigorating. It's the same with challenging your mind with unfamiliar ideas. Your mind gets invigorated. I would just add to that because you're talking about something that I actually spent a fair amount of time studying in my undergrad and I pursued anthropology and archaeology. One of the primary tenets of anthropological research is that you try to view a culture from within it as opposed to with judgment. And so there's this focus on doing your best to remain objective. But even as you do something in a laboratory, your presence changes the outcome of a study. So there really isn't a way to be purely objective. And then the question has come up even more over the course of the past few decades as we look at human rights initiatives, right? And we say things like, oh no, universally female genitalia mutilation and or castration, that's mutilation and that's bad. There's judgment there. We're saying ultimately that we're not objective about this, that this is universally wrong and we need to protect women. And so something like that, it's not really an objective view. You're making a judgment, right? So even having this idea that there was ever something as simple as a truly objective press is, I mean, we're fallible. 
people are fallible. We bring our perspective no matter what we might try to do to remain as broadly informed as possible. I want to bring to light another trend, which we're seeing, and this is kind of backed by the tech giants, right? Google really dictates a lot of how we see the things that we search for. And of late, they have recently gone through some updates to how they have optimized their search engine. And one of those things is to really tell us that they are going to show you preferentially content on sites where a site has demonstrated that they are specialist in one particular thing. Well, guess what typically isn't specialist? News outlets, right? It's news across many different subjects. And so what I think will happen with this shift is that we'll start to see these microcosmic news outlets that are focused on one thing that get more airtime and kind of come out of the rafters, so to speak. I have one example that I pay attention to, which is high country news. It's very much a climate first perspective. They cover things like oil use, fracking, air pollution, indigenous lands, all sorts of subjects that relate. And they have different contributors from around the globe, some of whom create video content that they offer on YouTube and in other spots. And I've found that their journalistic efforts to really kind of lift the skirt on issues that general public may not be aware of is very well thought out, very well done, incredibly well written, and they help you deeply understand an issue. But it's coming through this environmentalist lens for sure. And if you don't believe that climate change is real, then you're not going to like this publication, right? <laughs> so as it stands right now, I do think that Google has essentially set us up to enter kind of a worsening situation in a way because they're not going to, at least from what I've seen, give, let's say, a general news outlet of somebody trying to be balanced more airtime. They're going to hyper-focus you on these particular specialist sites. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time in red, white, and blind looking at social media and the way that the internet right now, the Silicon Valley giants are really manipulating our news. And particularly I focus on Google and YouTube, Facebook and Twitter. And there's other things going on as well, but absolutely. I mean, I spent some time looking at Google and I don't know if you've even heard his name isn't even very well known, but Zach Boris, who wrote the book, Google Leaks came out about two years ago. And basically he was a whistleblower, a software engineer from inside Google. And he found all of this evidence of them literally redirecting people's searches on YouTube and on Google, like if you search for this thing, they're going to give you these, these results, not the organic results. And it's amazing, right, to believe. I mean, Google has something like 90% market share on search in this country. Globally, I mean, I think it's actually 88 in the United States and it's 92 globally, right? So it's the whole world. And for them to be able to say, like, if you put in a search for climate change or you put in a search for something on the other side, like the 2020 election, the fact that they're going to steer you in a different direction, I mean, that's crazy. That's insane, right? To believe, because yeah, they have the ability to essentially decide what knowledge is. I mean, their whole stance is we're the gateway to the world's information, right? I'm addicted to Google. It's the only search engine I like using because I feel like it ends up giving me more relevant. I mean, I've used Yahoo, I've used Bing, I've used DuckDuckGo, I've used any that I can really find. And generally speaking, I find what I'm looking for more with Google. But with this recent update, I kind of like went, eh? Like, okay, so what does this mean at the end of the day? Because they'll only communicate certain elements, right? You're not going to get access to the algorithms that they're <laughs> putting out there. But they're even saying, okay, they want to see first person writing. So they're going to preferentially give airtime to opinion pieces, ultimately, over 
something that would be written in a traditional journalistic way, right? Because they want to hear I, we, personal experience, things like that, which is a different style of writing than journalistic writing. Is it not? Yeah, absolutely. Of course. And again, like you said before, we can say there's no objective journalism. It doesn't mean that people shouldn't try to be objective and that, that like objective reporting is bad. Objective reporting is great. It's just that there's no way to know who's doing it, right? So because of that, we have to have sort of the whole, I call it a smorgasbord of perspectives available. And the idea that Google is going to choose that and police that is very, very dangerous. And same with Twitter. And I actually call out YouTube as the single most important website for what I call the new enlightenment, basically the birth of independent media. Because video is the most powerful medium and because YouTube is the most powerful and Google bought YouTube, whatever it was, 10 years ago now. Second largest search engine. Yeah. So. The name is YouTube, right? Like you can put anything you want on the tube. It's this grand promise of a distance remediated world of information. And it's really has birthed in a large part independent media. And the fact that Susan Wojcicki, the CEO of YouTube, came out, this was about, I think this was three years ago. I mean, she literally came out and said, she used the ways people attack YouTube to attack her own company. She said, it's easy for people to make content in their basement. And for that reason, we're <laughs> going to prop, push up authoritative sources on news topics. I mean, it was an astounding statement in like so many ways. It was basically a suicide note for the company. Because the birth of YouTube, again, is you can put anything you want on the tube. You say this as I'm recording in what yeah, was my home basement. It's easy to make content from your basement. It's really, really, really hard to create a channel on YouTube that rivals the corporate media channels. But you can do it. That's what's amazing. People have done it. But it's really, really hard. But to attack her own customers, her own main users saying with the exact slurs that are used by the corporate media to attack YouTube, saying that like this sort of negative stereotype... It's crazy. And then to say, and we're going to promote authoritative sources. What that means is we're going to promote our competitors. I and mean, the competitors of YouTube are MSNBC, CNN, Fox, NPR, in the news world. There's other competitors as well. But to say we're going to promote them, because anyone can find, if you want to find corporate media, you can just put it in Google or you'll find a Fox or an MSNBC clip on anything. People go to YouTube because they want a different perspective. They want an independent media perspective. So to think that you're going to go to YouTube and you're going to put something in and you're going to just now, and you see this, it's really shifted over the last year or two, you see a whole range of corporate media news clips. And so I think what's happening with Google, how you just described it, they're censoring it and changing what they return. That is part of the new enlightenment. It's the sort of fight back of the dinosaurs. It's basically this fight back of the Catholic church or the feudal system, the people that own the top-down distribution of information, they're going to push back and try to keep control of it. But there's going to be competitors. They're going to have to change or they're going to be replaced. And so there's going to be a search engine that is unbiased or that has an open source algorithm that you can go look at it. There's going to be a version of Twitter that will have an open source algorithm. So you can decide, okay, certain speech we should remove. Speech that directly incites violence, it's already illegal speech that's libelous, it's already illegal, like that probably should be removed, but everything else should be left up. And so if these silicon media giants continue to censor and to distort and to propagandize in a sense. It is propaganda. Let's be it real. Is propaganda. Yeah. I mean, that's why I initially said comparative to what you experience in China. I have friends who live in China that their perspective is that they get fairer press there than they do here, which is kind of an amazing comment. I don't know if I trust it because I personally haven't lived in that particular area of the world. I've not yet visited China, 
but I would really enjoy your perspective there since you've written so broadly on the topic. Sure. Yeah. So at one chapter of Red, White and Blind is I was there in 2001, which is sort of dates me. It's like a long time ago, but it was when a spy plane went down. I don't know if you remember this was before 9-11. So people have kind of forgotten it, but there was this American spy plane that was spying over China and it went down on this island. Anyway, we don't have to get into the story, but I was there and I was able to see both sides because the internet was a thing. So I was able to go into these internet cafes. It was still very crude, but I could sort of bring up CNN.com and then I could go out and my Chinese was kind of rough with a dictionary. I could read a Chinese article in the newspaper and to just see how different the perspectives were. It was really part of my awakening that in a sense led to Red, White and Blind to see these different perspectives. And what I'll tell you is that no, the Chinese media environment is not more open than ours. What it is it's more crude, right? So the censorship and the propaganda is more obvious. And what that does, and the real difference, is that the Chinese people, by and large, know that it's propaganda. They know that it's couched and it's slanted and that they're not getting the full story. Whereas Americans tend to believe, not all. Okay, so I'm automatically thinking about what I know of Chinese culture, but I worked for years for a company called Draco Natural Products. And one of the habits of the Chinese people is they'll say da, 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 when they're in agreement, but it's almost like it's kind of brushing away. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and for some reason that comes to mind as you say this, because I could also see that existing within the culture. Just, oh yeah, this is what we're being told. Yeah. Right. Like an awareness that this is part of the story. Right. Right. Whereas the American system, I call it the most sophisticated propaganda instrument in the history of mankind because we have this wide array of news sources, right? So we think that we're getting we the whole think, story. Yeah. It's like you walk down the aisle and there's like a hundred brands of toothpaste. And so you think you've got this grand, but actually it's the same product just in different bottles, right? So it's the same kind of thing. It's not that they're the same. It's Noam Chomsky has this really good quote that I use in the book, which is the most successful way to control the way people think is to allow two viewpoints that are relatively close to each other to vociferously disagree. So that's what we have, right? We have this sense of this like echo chamber where like the Republican and the Democrat can like really, really argue about this one thing, but kind of within these narrow confines. And so I use this analogy of a river, it's like, they're not necessarily steering the water, but they're steering the banks. So the water can kind of slosh back and forth. Okay, so now it's a little bit on the right side. Now it's all on the blue side. And so that's why I say it's the most sophisticated propaganda instrument in the history of mankind. And it's still not strong enough. I don't believe, although we'll, we'll see, it's an exciting time to be alive. I don't think it's strong enough to continue to distort and deceive Americans as this new enlightenment flowers, as we have conversations like the one you and I are right, having right now, not intermediated by corporations, not intermediated by all of the different types of bias and distortion. That's the trend. The trend is towards more and more of this, more and more of direct experiences being shared. And it's not like every independent media place is accurate and truthful. No, I mean, there's lots of distortion there too. And perhaps that's what Google intends. Maybe they're trying to be part of the solution there. I don't know. I'm skeptical. I will say that. And this is what Zach Voorhees says in his book, is that what he saw was on the election of Donald Trump in 2016. That's where he sort of leaks all of the ways that Google was going to decide to steer the news to make it more negative about Trump and to make it harder and harder to find balanced news from that perspective. If you're somebody that happens to not like Trump and to be a Democrat, you might be like, oh, that's great. They're like part of the, they're trying to help get rid of this dangerous president. And that may be fine for the few years. But what you're doing is you're basically putting in place a system 
that will always eventually turn against you, right? So, so this is the reason I use Zach. Well, and it's a, it's a dangerous precedent to set. Very dangerous. If you look in history, it always ends up coming back. I mean, all anyone ever says, the authoritarians, they always just say, we're trying to protect you from the fake news. We're just trying to protect you from the disinformation. But that's always what they say. Like Stalin said this, Hitler said this, Mao, like it's always that. They always want the free speech as long as the speech agrees with them. What's difficult is to support free speech that you disagree with and to do it on principle. And so that's where I really land in the book is that we need to support free speech on principle because the alternative is untenable. Yeah. So how do you land then? I'm going to bring up something that may be controversial here. But in Germany, as a for instance, even having a swastika tattooed on your body is essentially illegal. We don't have those same rules here in the United States because we hold that free speech pretty high, right? We consider that kind of a physical demonstration to be a choice of your personal autonomy. So how do you view that even as it relates to what propaganda or state control? Right. So The Constitution, and I go to there first. So the Constitution, the idea of free speech, and the Constitution is written by people coming right out of places of religious persecution, censorship, all of that, is that people need to be able to speak freely in order to have democracy and science. These are the bedrocks of sort of enlightenment values. Science is this idea that all ideas are open and we can inquire. Innovation tends to happen on the edges, not in the mainstream. So you need to be able to have people say whatever they want to say within a scientific world. Same in democracy, right? Innovation often comes from the fringes, not from the mainstream. And so for that reason, you need to be able to tolerate all kinds of views, even views that you despise, right? So that's the tricky part is not because speech that you despise is good, right? It's not good to have people wearing swastikas or saying things that you find absolutely abhorrent. It's that the alternative is worse. The alternative is you have to select some body of people somewhere to decide what speech is okay and what speech is not. And that the power of that body will always be corrupted, right? Because it's always humans and humans given power, power will corrupt. Something recently happened where Facebook chose to essentially create their internal auditing committee, almost like they would a Supreme Court, right? Where they decide what needs to be censored or removed based on how dangerous that information could be. I mean, I listened to this very interesting deep dive. I think it was done by an NPR affiliate and into what that looks like and what somebody would consider to be hate speech in another country differed dramatically from what we would think of as hate speech here, even in a cartoon, so to speak. And so how do we even self-police or rely on our social media giants to really take care of these things? when there can be specific posts that really are meant to incite violence and to get people enraged to the point where they'll storm the Capitol or something to that effect. So I think that the legal distinctions we have are good ones. It's not meant to incite violence, but inciting violence. If it actually incites, right, like yelling fire in a crowded movie theater, that is not protected speech, right? So if you're actually inciting violence, then that should be taken down. If it's libelous, right, which is basically knowingly false or with a reckless disregard for truth or false, meant to make somebody look bad and with actual malice. So those two standards exist, and I think those should continue. But hate speech, I think it's just too nebulous. Who's one person's, like you just said, one person's hate speech is another person's strong opinion. Or they consider it to be comedy. Yeah. And that's the thing. And comedy is so important and so powerful 
for politics, for science, for all of it, the ability to stand back and kind of skewer the sort of tendentious thinking, right? To be able to skewer the blind spots that people have. It's so important. And it's, again, one of the first things that authoritarians go after is because humor, basically the ability to say a truth, it's, this isn't the only kind of humor, and there's a lot of kinds of humor, but in political context, humor is the ability to stand back and say something everyone knows is true, but everyone's scared to say, right? Right. Parody is protected too. So, I mean, we have that ability, but I have a dear friend who I've known since high school that's also a comedian, and she's on her third TikTok account because she keeps getting banned. So let's go there. I think this is a really important point. So I go into social media censorship, and I really try to talk through why social media censorship is a violation of constitutional free speech. And a lot of people will first kind of say, no, it's not because they're a private company. And the constitution isn't about private I've heard company. that argument, right? That's a common argument. And so I spend like three or four pages of the book, just literally looking at that argument. And I make three points that I think are important to realize why it is a constitutional violation and that why we should be very concerned about this. And I'll get into the regulatory models I think we should use for social media. So the first reason is because social media has become the public square, right? So in the original vision of it, there's this idea of a soapbox, right? We still talk about a soap. There's literally, you took a box of soap, you turn it over, you stood up in the market, people are buying their carrots and their slabs of beef, whatever. And you just start talking because you're on your soapbox. I think that the government, the president is an idiot. This podcast is my soapbox. So yeah. Yeah, here's your soapbox. <laughs> and literally this, you're exercising free speech right now. This is constitutionally protected what you and I are doing. But what's happened is there's not a lot of town squares and there's farmer's markets, but it's not like everybody goes and buys their produce at a market anymore, right? You go to a supermarket and there's no soapboxes there. What's happened is the debate that is our most important debate, right, goes on in social media by and large. Twitter has smaller footprint than Facebook, but it's disproportionately powerful people. CEOs are on Twitter, famous doctors and professors and all. They go in and exchange ideas. Politicians. Absolutely. <laughs> Facebook is bigger and it's a much broader public square for sort of like everyday Americans. They are the public square. They're the town square. So that's the first point I make. The second point I make is that they've gotten to monopoly power. So at this point, it's not like if you get censored by Facebook, if you get taken down because you said something Facebook didn't like, there's no alternative. Twitter's not an alternative to Facebook. Facebook is what it is. It's not the same and YouTube, right? So, and increasingly they try to take you off of all of them at once. So that's the other thing. So you have monopolies. And then, so you take these two. And then my third point is because of the monopoly power and because of the fact that they're the town square, what you have is these companies are increasingly commonly interacting with Congress. Congress has things they want from social media. You often will hear Congress persons saying, we want you to censor more. Or we want you to take down this idea. And at the same time, the social media companies need Congress because they are very interested in how they're regulated. And they're also sometimes trying to win contracts. Google's trying to win a contract with the CIA to store their data and stuff, right? So you have this like real quid pro quo going on there. So it's a direct line between the government and these monopolies to say, okay, so if I want to continue my Section 230 protections, and then the Congress people are like, okay, well, we don't want any more ideas about insider trading, or we don't want any more ideas about Mitch McConnell's indiscretions, right? So then they take that down. That's constitutional censorship. And so that's why I basically draw this line. I think it's a very important thing to understand. Now, if we move into a world where there's all of these companies are broken up and there's 20 Facebooks and there's 20 Twitters and everybody's got their own thing, maybe it's different. Or if people go back to standing on soapboxes in markets and expounding their views and that actually sways people, then maybe it's different. But at this point, yes, this censorship is dangerous and it's a threat to constitutional free speech. 
So let's talk about something that connects to this idea, and that is shadow banning, where let's say that Facebook doesn't take down that post. They just don't show it to anybody. I mean, isn't it the same thing? And at what point can we take action against something like that? Because, I mean, I have specific examples that relate to this because my podcast is in the social impact and sustainability space. And because I tend to hashtag or talk about things that relate to climate science or to limits on our social awareness or just issues that people are facing because they tool it as social impact or climate activism, it automatically gets quashed and only my strongest and most ardent supporters will even see that content. So I wonder if you could speak to that and what we can do to really try and break free from that so that even this podcast episode gets to see more people. No, it's absolutely right. And I talk about shadow banning. It's a real thing. And it is. It's the same. It's a censorship. In fact, in some ways, it's worse because I talk about censorship. I talk about the Streisand effect, which I think, I don't know if you know about this. <laughs> yes, this I do. Barbara Streisand. It's one of my husband's favorite stories. Okay, right? so it's a great story. <laughs> and I use the Streisand effect. I talk about it in Red, White, and Blind several times because I think it helped my article. Well, let's share it with everyone in case okay, they've never heard. Sure. Yeah. So Barbara Streisand, it's an interesting story. It's kind of cute. So Barbara Streisand, so she has this palatial estate in Malibu. I think it's like right on the coast, literally like staring out at the Pacific Ocean. And somebody had a photo of it from like a drone or a helicopter that they put in this like coastal commissions report on the coastline. Like, let's just look at the coastline. If the coastline's changing, these are some properties. And so it was there. It was this like relatively minor report for this like minor county commission. But Barbara Streisand realized it was in there and she got upset and she said, I want this picture taken down from the internet and I want it taken out of this commission report. So the photo at that point had been viewed by two dozen people. Suddenly it went on social media. Everybody's like, oh, Barbara Streisand has a big palatial estate and she's upset about it. Let's go check out that photo. And so suddenly hundreds of thousands of people saw this picture of her house. She made it go viral. She and did. it went viral and it became a huge thing. And suddenly Barbara Streisand had to actually go out and talk about why she'd built this house and like why she'd done this and like why it's on the coastline and all this stuff. So it was this really interesting effect where if she had just said nothing and just then, you know, a couple dozen people might have seen it and it might have like looked bad and she might have felt a little, I don't well, know. Well, and everybody not. in the drone space was hyper interested in the story too, because she was essentially saying that she owned the airspace above her home. And so it brought into question property rights, ownership. Nobody owns the coastline in California. That's part of another reality where none of us can because it's considered public lands. And so, again, it just brought to light so many really interesting conversations about what ownership means when it comes to property. What do you have the right to then censor because you own it or you don't, right? And as in the case, I think at the end of the day, they didn't take the photo down, right? So. I mean, at that point, it didn't matter probably. But like with my article on Reddit, suddenly the content was there. And so even though Huffington Post had taken it down, and so even if the Coastal Commission or whatever had taken the photo down, Probably 10,000 people had just saved it to their local machine so they could put it on Twitter and then it was everywhere. The big question I have is how real is the censorship that's presently happening on Facebook, on Twitter, and on these other platforms? Because each of these essentially created little micro movements, right? Where people then suddenly said, screw Facebook, I'm going to Parler, or I'm no longer going to be on YouTube. I'm going to this other platform. I'm Rumble. forgetting the yeah. name of Rumble, right? So ultimately, what should we think about as the present status, what are the chances that we're going to continue to see a lot of shadow banning and censorship? I would say at this point, it's going to get worse before it gets better. That's unfortunately my prognosis. I'm optimistic that it might shift. 
So I'm building my own little YouTube channel. I'm just starting Red, White, and Blind. If viewers are out there, they want to see it. I don't have a I lot of time. I saw that. I know you have like uh, 20 followers or something. It's about to go up by a few because I'm going to share it too. Oh, 13 cool. subscribers. Now you have 14. Okay, wonderful. <laughs> so I'm going to start putting up with my book now done. I've been just spending every single moment of every day finishing the book. I'm now going to start to take each chapter of the book and do a video about it. And like, so I have first section, I look at the Jeffrey Epstein story. And then I look at like the origin of the virus. I look at these stories that were distorted in the media and try to just explain why this distortion happened, the different kinds of biases. So if people are interested in that, I'm going to start producing that content. But I'm bringing that up not to just like toot my horn of my little channel, but because I'm also simultaneously going to upload things to Rumble as a precautionary measure, because I don't know how long I'll be on YouTube. I could get taken down. It could be up there for 10 years. I really don't know how it's going to go. I was listening to some guy try to explain the community guidelines of YouTube. And he's like, it's more complicated than the US tax code. <laughs> it's like, you're never going to figure it out. It's probably not meant to be figured out. I think they want to have it as they can just use it to ban somebody they don't like. And yes, the censorship and the shadow banning is very, very intense right now on YouTube and Facebook. We'd have to cut across some controversial issues where people are getting censored more from my perspective. But yes, climate science, climate change, that is happening. Also vaccine stuff. Also people having alternative perspectives on, you just talked about the January 6th. So all of these things, people are getting censored. And it's like, we can stand back and say, oh, well, I don't agree with those people there. So they get censored and it's okay. Oh, they're fringe. So it's all right. They're fringe. And I just right. really encourage us all to realize it's all the fringe until it's you, right? And if so, you don't stand for the fringe when eventually it's your fringe, there's gonna be nobody left to stand for you. So other than again, inciting violence or libel, which should be taken down, we should support even people saying things. I really don't agree with that guy's thoughts on this particular thing or that particular controversial issue. But he should be able to say it because there's going to be more people that are going to say the other side and eventually the truth comes out. If you believe in democracy and science, that's what you believe in. Otherwise, you believe in the model of the Catholic Church, that there's one truth and that that truth is the government's perspective. And anybody that doesn't have that perspective should be banned. If that's how you see things, then the government always brings in the best experts and they always have the best perspective. Then that's your perspective. That's different than what our country is founded on. And I didn't used to be this like big sort of constitutional guy, right? But having lived in China where they didn't go through the enlightenment, they don't have the same sense of what an individual means. They don't have the same sense of free speech, right to assembly, right to petition, right to religion, right to free press. It's different. It's a more Confucian model. There's a whole different philosophy around what it means to be an individual in a collective society. And so I really recommend those of you who value our version of democracy and science that it's it is important to support diverse views and so that's also why I, again the balanced media diet i talk about this idea of media consciousness where i think that red white and blind the state of deception that we're in this type of deception is the most powerful deception we're experiencing right now as americans is this deception from the media and media consciousness is a path it's not like a state you get to it's a journey towards awakening from that and I compare it in some ways to like self-help journey or the meditation, introspection, realizing that these voices inside of our head that maybe you're like, oh, I'm not smart enough or sexy enough or whatever enough to have my dreams, that those are just voices that were placed in your head probably by maybe your parents or by like some super ego that's not important anymore. And that we can meditate, we can learn and we can see those and become conscious of them. And that similarly, we can become conscious about the deception that's coming from the voices from outside of our head, that they're just as powerful and just as important. And that's also why I say that 
the path to media consciousness and the balanced media diet, it promises many things. It sounds hard, but it promises we can connect with more people because we'll understand more ideas and we'll connect more deeply with ourselves because we'll start to see this deception that we're under, that we're experiencing. And so. Well, I, I'm reminded of a quote by my father, and I don't know if he was the first to say it, but it's something he's leaned back on as someone who grew up with the Catholic Church and was an altar boy <laughs> before he walked away from organized religion. And he says that organized religion is a great way to control people. And I feel like part of how we've constructed what the present state of free speech in these air quotes is a great system through which to control people. And often by playing these opposing sides that often have far more common interests than they'll ever, ever think through is just something that we need to get real with, understand, and invite and open ourselves to conversation and discourse and disagreement, get comfortable being uncomfortable, really just listen to each other. Because the fact is that we have more in common than the government would have us believe. And I say the government in full awareness, it's both sides of that equation. They want us in a way to think that we're battling one another because that's the system through which they can win, right? I agree with everything you just said. Very well said. I think it's interesting as I go around, I've been on some podcasts. I'm just starting to with this book. And I've also talked to a number of people. It's amazing how many people have the experience of my views don't really map onto either of the parties, but I'm a little bit nervous to tell others about that, right? So it's this tribalism. And it's right, the odds are not that you're going to just happen to have views that completely align with like the Democratic Party or completely align with the Republican Party. That's just not the reality. But we are, we're pulled and we're pushed into these divisions. And it's really making it a big problem. And I think we're even experiencing it in our families. And I really hope that I can maybe affect one or two people by getting into touch with a balanced media diet, by starting to understand different ideas, you can start to have those relationships back. Because like you just said, it's about listening. I may not agree with you on this one topic, even though we agree on seven out of eight topics, but this one topic that's caused us not to be able to have phone calls with each other anymore, I now understand your viewpoint. And so now we can get back to the fact that we agree on seven out of eight things. And this other thing, I respect your viewpoint and I respectfully disagree. It's not that far off, but it takes a little bit of work. And like you said, a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of a willingness to consider ideas that are unfamiliar. That's right. Well, I can't think of a better note on which to end because I think we're both speaking the same kind of conclusive comment from like, open your minds, try to think a little differently, explore your connections and be willing to have discourse. So if there's another thought that you would love to leave our audience with, I'll open the floor for you. Karina, thank you very much. I have nothing to add. My book is out at the end of November. I'd love to continue the conversation. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for coming. And Tony, I applaud you for fighting the good fight because in the world that we live in, it's challenging to lift the skirt on things that create uncomfortable conversations. It's doubly challenging to try and be a journalist today. There's been such an incredible shakeup in the field of journalism. Mass layoffs have occurred. All these individual contributors are vying for a little bit of airtime just to make a name for themselves and even paying to contribute to publications like Entrepreneur and some others just to get some street cred, which is just ridiculous to me. So we could go on about that as a completely different subject, but Ultimately, I think this has been a really engaging conversation. I hope people have stuck through to the end. 
And I want to invite everyone to visit your website, tonybrasunas.com, and also to find your YouTube channel. I'm going to link to both with show notes. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Karina. My pleasure. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, as I connected deeply with Tony Brasunas, I encourage you to write a review of this podcast on your favorite platform. Apple Podcasts gives us the most cred. So if you can go there and do your little review, give us five stars on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. It's immensely helpful so we can reach more people. But you can read us on Spotify or wherever you listen to. Now, for complete transcripts, you can always go to caremorebebetter.com. There you'll find the YouTube version of this podcast episode. In addition to the audio, complete transcripts. So if you happen to be hearing impaired, you can read the content through to the very end. You can even sign up for our newsletter. I send one email a week, so I will not bombard your inbox at all. And you'll also receive as your welcome gift, five-step guide to unleash your inner activist. If you care about something like censorship or climate change, just pick your pleasure and this guide will help you ultimately organize your thoughts and have a greater impact. If you have feedback or questions, you can always leave me a voicemail or an email note directly on caremorebebetter.com. And I encourage you to engage with me in social media. I always value a share here and there. Thank you now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more and we can be better. We can even eliminate censorship. We just have to try. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.